0: Hey y'all, our sermon text this week comes from Matthew 28, the last four verses of the Gospel of Matthew. It's a section known as the Great Commission. It says, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some still doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you, even to the very end of the age. Last week was Pentecost, the dramatic birth of the church. The Holy Spirit promised by Jesus falls like fire onto the frightened, cloistered disciples, emboldening and indwelling them. In the rushing of a mighty wind, all fear is swept away and the disciples are pushed into the crowded streets of Jerusalem, presenting, proclaiming, preaching the good news that Jesus is alive and Jesus is Lord among the hearers. Some scoff, but many, many believe this life-changing, earth-shattering, history-altering message of the Gospel and Acts tells us that 3,000 were baptized in one day and now as the festival season ends all of these visitors to Jerusalem are going to return to their homes all over the ancient Near East and they're taking the Gospel with them. What an incredible way to start the new chapter in the story of the people of God. So you would understand why I was surprised when I looked at my schedule for this week, and saw that the lectionary, the collection of texts that we sometimes use to plan our sermons here at Townview, uh, it takes us back to Matthew. It doesn't lead us farther into the action-packed movie that is the book of Acts. It takes us back to the Gospels. This seems like a very strange move, and I'm sure they have a reason for it. I'm sure if you Google it, There are some good articles explaining why they designed it in this way, but whether they meant it or not, I think they've given us a gift in this moment that we could step back and ask the question, do we really know what we're doing? Uh, If we're commissioned to be the church, to go to the world, to go to our neighbors, and to preach, Everything that Jesus had taught, we need to stop and make sure we know what the gospel is. Now that the gospel's out in the world, we gotta make sure we know what Jesus taught. So, since the text has brought us to the book of Matthew, let's see what Jesus says the gospel is in Matthew. Matthew 4 said that Jesus went throughout the region of Galilee teaching and healing, speaking in synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God, that the kingdom of God had drawn near and become accessible. And this is the core teaching of Jesus. So what is the kingdom of God? Well, if we keep going, Matthew 5, 6, and 7 are called the Sermon on the Mount. And they're, they're like a manifesto of Jesus. What Jesus's ideal world would look like. What things set right would be like. And so Jesus takes on this very Moses-like image. He climbs the side of a mountain and speaks to the people. And he tells them what God wants from them. How to live in community. How to live with your family how to deal with your enemies, how to deal with trouble, how to care for the poor, and shows us the, these exemplars, these ideas, these what it looks like when the kingdom of God draws near. What are the marks of the kingdom? If we study the Sermon on the Mount, we find seven. Uh, deliverance and salvation. When the kingdom of God draws near, People are delivered. People are saved. Justice is realized in the world around us. Peace becomes a reality in the presence of the kingdom of God. Healing manifests in the kingdom of God. Communities, relationships are restored. We discover joy. And the presence of God is known. In chapter 6, uh, Jesus says, seek first this kingdom, hunt these things, focus on this. Everything else will fall into place when you seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness. Words like this, they sound like Isaiah. We see these Moses motifs. We see Isaiah, we hear the words of the prophet. It draws us back into the old Testament where the, the powerful voices of the prophets came to demand of the people justice and righteousness. Uh, r- righteousness is when things are righteous, right, when things are set right, when people live together in peace, where no one is treated wrongly, where no one is separated out, where people are equal despite social differences. And justice uh, refers to the actions that we take to create that world. Uh, speaking about the kingdom of God, righteous is sort of the adjective, and justice is the verb. And these, righteousness and justice, are what God says are expected of us, and what God says are right, acceptable, true and pleasing worship of this God. But then here in Matthew 22, Jesus reframes justice and righteousness as love, saying in Matthew 22, I'm going to start at verse 36, someone asks him, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, verse 37, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. The kingdom has been redefined as love. And his earliest disciples, they understood this. One of the first Christians said it like this. God is love. And if, if we don't show love, if we don't give love, if we don't do love if we don't live a life of love then we don't really know this god paul the author of a third of the new testament uh, wrote the section that we read earlier in the service first corinthians 13 and he explained it really clearly to us he says if i speak in the tongues of men and angels but do not have love I'm just noise. If I have the gifts of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and knowledge, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. If I have faith strong enough to move the mountains, but no love, what good is any of that? If I give all my possessions to the poor and hand my body over to hardship That I may boast in my martyrdom, but I don't have love. I gain nothing." He goes on, he says, love is patient and kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in injustice, but rejoices In truth, love protects, love trusts, love hopes, and love preserves. All these other things will fall away. But in the end, three things will remain. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these will always be love. The earliest Christians, they lived in a world dominated by force, by might, by oppression and empire. This was their context. These are the things they understood, but they saw their leader, Jesus, reject all conventional understandings of power. They saw him preach a gospel and live a life and die a death that were completely in line with the message. Of the kingdom of love. And they so believed this message. They so believed in this kingdom of justice and righteousness that they boldly took the gospel to the whole world. In the 17th chapter of the book of Acts, we see the powerful in the city of Thessalonica. They're threatened by the message of Jesus, of love and of justice. And the text says that they cried out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. They are acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar and saying that there is another king, Jesus. And they were right. The gospel turns the world upside down. It has started revolutions and torn down tyrants. It has elevated saints and inspired poets. It has driven societies and started churches. It has built schools, hospitals, and shelters. It has confounded sages and guided the humble. It has ended wars and rebuked slave owners. It has united peoples and broken down barriers. It has brought ruin to the proud and equality among communities. It has elevated women. It has guided social change. It has the power to build bridges. It has the power to crush racism. It has the power to call out corruption. It has the power to free the oppressed. It has the power to change lives. It has the power to break and mend hearts. It has the power to bring justice and to change communities. It has the power. To save souls. It has the power to save families. It has the power to bring healing. It has the power to bring life and to raise the dead. It has the power to change the world. And it has the power to change us. This has to bring us back to our great commissioning. At the start of Acts, we see Jesus give that same commission to the disciples, and he tells them to take their gospel to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. He expects that they are going to radiate outward and that the kingdom will expand to encompass all of humanity, but that it starts small, it starts local, it starts with and in us. Maybe one of the unexpected gifts of the pandemic is that we've all been forced back to our Jerusalems. In the church, we get very excited, and rightfully so, about big picture, big evangelism, big outreach, international missions, And these are good and they're beautiful and they are called for. But maybe we have reached a moment where we need to go home and evangelize our own hearts before we can return to the mission field. Maybe this is a time to investigate and interrogate our motives and our souls and our hearts and the version of the gospel that we preach and make sure that it's in line with that of Jesus. The Great Commission to us today is an invitation to start again in our very homes, in our own lives, with our own families. We need to get our house straight and then we can change the world. But first, we have to be willing, humble, and brave enough to let Jesus challenge and change us with the message of the kingdom, with the message of justice, righteousness, faith, hope, and love. Amen.